Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Lord, thank you for our time together already this morning. Thank you that we can come sing to you. Thank you for these beautiful families and babies and young children that we have the privilege to steward for your glory as they grow. Thank you for Joey and Carla and their ministry that we are so grateful for. Thankful for these young men that graduated from Ranger School on Friday. We pray for the ones that are still there in that difficult training. Give them strength. We pray for the men and women from this church in our country that are still stationed in Afghanistan and fighting that war. We pray that you'd keep them safe and bring them back quickly. Now, Lord, we turn our attention to your word, to these final few verses of Ephesians and then the whole letter. And I pray, Lord, that you would do two things in particular. One, that for those that are already trusting in you, for the Christians in this room, I pray, Lord, that you would stir our affections for Jesus so that we would behold our Savior and that we would be transformed more and more. We would be inched a little bit further into his likeness. And then, Lord, I pray for those that are in this room who are not yet trusting on you, in you, those that maybe think they are but they haven't, and those that are aware of the fact that they're not believers in Jesus and they're just here searching or investigating, or maybe they just came to visit a family. Lord, would you be so kind as to give them ears to hear and a heart to believe the only message that matters, and that's the message of what you have done in Christ on the cross to reconcile rebels like us to yourself. Help us now think deeply about these things and glory in our creator, the God of our salvation. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's read. I'm going to pick up halfway through verse 18, which is where we ended off last week. Remember, we talked about spiritual warfare and the armor that God gives us, and now we're midway through verse 18. Paul writes, To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak, so that you also may know him, know how I am and what I am doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Just a couple thoughts before we look at the overarching themes of Ephesians. One is that Paul is at the end of his discourse on spiritual warfare, reminding the church that they should pray, that they should keep all alertness and diligence, and that we should pray for one another. When he says, making supplication for all the saints... I think in particular that applies to the people that are reading this letter and hearing this letter together, the saints that are gathered in that room, the church of Ephesus, that we would pray for one another, 
that we'd be connected in community. It's not enough to just sort of be in the same room for an hour and a half or two on Sunday mornings, but to be connected in community. That's why community groups, which Reynolds mentioned before, are so important. That's why our member meetings on the first Sunday night of every other month are so important, so that we can specifically pray for one another. And he says also that he asked for them to pray for him, that he would boldly proclaim the gospel. I take such comfort in that prayer because here is the Apostle Paul, one of the most courageous people in the history of humanity, certainly one of the most courageous ministers of the gospel ever, and he is asking for prayers from the church at Ephesus that he would be bold. Pray that also for your pastors, that we would be bold as we preach the gospel not only publicly in our gathered services, but as we preach and speak the gospel to people one-on-one. And I find that it's very easy to get up in front of five, six, seven hundred people. Crowds don't intimidate me. I can get up in front of a thousand people, two thousand people, and I can say whatever I think the Bible says. But when I sit across from a person that needs to hear a difficult word or a rebuke for their sin, oftentimes that's when I sort of cringe and cower. And I think that's probably the same for some of our other pastors. And so pray for us that we would be faithful stewards of the gospel and that we would proclaim it boldly, not only in front of the crowds from a distance, but one-on-one with people as we wrestle with the muck and mire of life. And so now let's take a break from the end of that passage and step back and look at three overarching themes that I think are given to us in Ephesians. And we could spend much more time looking at the the themes of Ephesians, but I've narrowed it down to three. So three themes that I think we need to take away from the book of Ephesians. The first is that God is sovereign over salvation and governs all things for the display and praise of His glorious grace. Chapters 1 and 2 of Ephesians that we spent a good amount of time on back in the fall speak directly to this. Now, friends, when we talk about the sovereignty of God in salvation, you can go ahead and keep that point up there. I think some folks are writing it down. And I need it too, actually. (laughs) Logan, if you could get that up there, that'd be great. There it is. Friends, there's probably no more controversial issue in theological circles than the extent of God's sovereignty in the salvation of souls. I think all faithful Christians agree that God is sovereign and that we can only be saved by trusting in what Jesus has done on the cross. And I think that all faithful biblical Christians agree that we are all in sin and separated from God by our nature, by our sin nature, that we're not born into spiritual neutrality. The Bible's clear about that. It says that all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 5, verses 12 through 19, is Paul's exposition on the imputed sin, the nature of humanity, how we, because we are children of our first parents, Adam and Eve, inherit a sin nature from them, just as my children inherit my spiritual my physical DNA, so we have inherited our first parents' spiritual DNA, and we are all sinners. I think all biblical Christians agree to that point, that we are all sinners in need of grace. And I think all biblical Christians agree that not everybody 
is saved. Not everybody is a Christian. Some people die apart and outside of Christ. And the Bible's clear about the everlasting separation and judgment that comes with that. But what Christians, Christians often disagree, and many even in this room would disagree, is the extent of how sovereign God is in salvation. And I think that one of the great themes of Ephesians 1 and 2 is to tell us that God is utterly and completely sovereign over the salvation of souls. And friends, I, we talked about it a couple months ago. The point of today is not to unpack that theological debate again. But what I want you to see, regardless of where you are on that issue and where you fall out on the extent of God's sovereignty and whether or not he predestines people because of his grace alone or because he sees something in them and predestines them because of that thing, I want you to see the bigness of God. And I want you to glory in the God of your salvation if you're a Christian. And I want this truth to humble you. And I think clearly chapters 1 and 2 of Ephesians are trying to make the point that if you are a Christian, it's not because you did anything. Sin killed us. It separates us from God. And we were dead. We were dead in the grave spiritually. And God, because of his kindness alone, not because of any merit in us, not because of any good thing in us, not because of any strength, not because of any foreseen faith in us, but simply because he is kind and he saves sinners for his glory, set his love on us and adopted us as his sons and daughters through Jesus' work on the cross to bring us from death to life so that we would be an utter display of his work alone and his glory alone. This is what I think Paul is saying in Ephesians 1, verse 3. Let me read it for you. And this is one of the most beautiful passages one of the most humbling passages, and one of the most God-exalting passages in the whole Bible. Let me read Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Think about that, friends. Before creation was created, God set his love on you if you are a Christian that we should be holy and blameless before him. Think about that, that God, if you're a Christian, chose you before creation, and he chose you for a purpose that you would be holy and blameless. So young man that is struggling right now with pornography, know that it is the sovereign will of God to eventually transform you into the image of God. And so let that be fuel for your fight against sin. God has chosen you to be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Why? To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. I mean, look at all the superlatives that he just keeps adding on to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And then go to Ephesians chapter 2, 
And look at verse 4, where two of the sweetest words in the Bible, it says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Listen to this now. Even when we were dead on our trespasses, even when we were six feet under spiritually, even when we were sprinting from God in our rebellion, even when we wanted no part of him, not when we were showing signs of life, not when we were deciding to clean ourselves up and come to church, not when we signed up for the Bible study, not when we showed any evidence of regeneration or faith in us, but even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. You have not been saved, American, because you were born in the Bible Belt and you were a relatively good kid. By grace and grace alone, you've been saved. You weren't saved because you're smarter than the other kid on the other side of the world. You aren't saved because your faith is stronger than the person who rejects God. You weren't saved because there was any oomph or life in you. You, you get this, Christian, regardless of where you fall on this theological debate. And don't let doctrinal camps make you miss the power of this, make you miss the God-saturatedness of this. If you're a Christian, you owe your salvation to nothing in yourself but solely to the good and kind grace of a Father who made you alive when you were dead. And, and when you see that, see, here's what it does. It does a couple things. Number one, it humbles us, man. It humbles us. And nothing is, is what the American church needs more than humility. We are the most arrogant, self-sufficient people in the history of civilization. It humbles us. And it gives us great assurance, doesn't it? Because if you know that you didn't save yourself or God didn't pick you because you were better looking than the other kid, or because you could throw the dodgeball better than him at recess, if God picked you solely because of his grace, then he doesn't keep you because of your performance. He keeps you because of Jesus' performance on the cross in his perfect life. It gives us great assurance even when sin starts to rack against our soul and cause us to doubt our even salvation. We can be sure of it because our salvation is objective. It's Jesus. It's not subjective, our performance. It gives us great assurance. And finally, I think, and most importantly, when we realize that God is sovereign over salvation and governs all things for the display of his glory and the praise of his glorious grace, and I, would, I probably should have added there, so comma, and the good, the eternal good of his people, it should cause us to worship and wonder at our God. We weren't created just to understand doctrinal categories. We were created to worship God. You see that? So God's sovereign not only over salvation, but also over all things. This is what Charles Spurgeon says in his sermon. He writes, speaking not just over salvation, but Ephesians 1.11 there, it says, In him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So you know, Christian, that God didn't just save you for his grace, but he also orchestrates every area of your life, every deep and dark trial, every moment of pain is under God's providence in some strange and mysterious way for his glory. This is what Charles Spurgeon says. He says, from the right hand of God, our Lord Jesus rules all things here below and makes them work together for the salvation of his redeemed. 
He uses both bitter and sweet things, trials and joys, that he may produce in sinners a better mind toward their God. Be thankful for the providence which has made you poor or sick or sad. For by all this, Jesus works the life of your spirit and turns you to to himself. The Lord's mercy often rides to the door of our hearts on the black horse of affliction. Jesus uses the whole range of our experience to wean us from earth and woo us to heaven. Friends, I know I'm opening Pandora's box there when I'm even touching upon the sovereignty of God over evil and pain. And just last week, my my wife told me about a conversation that she had after church with a sister here in this church who has been through unspeakable, unspeakable pain in her life. And there may be somebody in this room right now who's been through unspeakable, terrible trial. And and it's very difficult for you to reconcile God's sovereignty over all things. And I think... I think we're, we're, we're faced with three options when we consider God's sovereignty over evil and sin and distress and trial. Either God is not in total control and is subject at times to the devil sort of one-upping him. I think that's clearly not biblical. And to go down that road, route, that, that's, that's a fearful road to travel down, to think that God is not in control. Our second option is to to think that God is in total control, but, but he's not really always good. Like he's in control, but he's sort of this distant watchmaker who's wound up the gears of the watch and, well, bad things are going to happen and, you know, things kind of work out in the end. And he's sort of governing the big things, but the little details of life he's not in. So, so God's in control, but he's, he's not really good in every minute detail. And friends, I think that's a despairing life philosophy as well. I think the third option is the most biblical, and that's that God is good and is in complete control of every detail of our lives. And how God's goodness intersects with evil and deep and horrible sin, even sin that some people in this room have been the victims of. Friends, we will not know that this side of eternity, but know, friends, know that God is good. And this momentary and light affliction, as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16, 17, and 18, although it may not feel momentary and light for you, God is using that as the sort of backdrop, the black velvet upon which he is preparing the diamond of your life for the glory of his salvation. And friends, I am not belittling any situation. I've ne- I mean, I have had the most charmed life, man. Like the worst thing that's happened to me is, 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 is a knee operation when I was a kid in high school. Like, and I had to miss a couple games, man. The worst thing that happened to me was six months at ranger school, and I came after that, and I, I overdosed on a pack of kin, Kit Kats on the way to Jennifer's house for to get a I mean, that's, I have lived a charmed life, man. And somebody in this room has gone through despicable, terrible tragedy. I get that, man. But do you realize that God somehow mysteriously in a good and providential way is in that and over that and is with you and is preparing for you an eternal weight of glory and he may in his kind providence and this is how he does it. He is able even to use the worst and most despicable of evil to wean us from this earth 
so that we would trust in him. And here's the deal. You may look jealously at people who have had a charmed life, but here's the deal about people that have charmed lives. Oftentimes, that's a curse on them because life here is so good, they don't long for anything but more stuff. And so young lady or young man that's been through difficulty, pain and trial, oh, somehow, some way, God is there with you. And in his kindness, he may be using that despicable thing that you've endured as a child to wean you from this earth so that you along, because friend, you were made for eternity, not just 70 or 80 years of comfort here on this earth. And friends, I know, I know, I know there, there have been horrible things done to you. Some, somehow, somehow, I think the only biblical option is for us to believe that God is sovereign over it all for his good and kind purposes. And these 80 years are not all there is to it. God is sovereign over salvation and governs all things for the display and praise of his glorious grace. Point number two, quickly, that I think Ephesians teaches us is that the church is central in God's plan. The church is central in God's plan. We read in Ephesians 2, the second part, and in Ephesians 3, about how he has broken down the middle wall of separation between God and man and also between Jew and Gentile. There's a beautiful diversity that Paul is advocating for in the Gentile church. Beautiful diversity that makes up the people of God from every tribe and tongue and nation. And Paul is writing this, listen, in an age of individualistic American self-absorption, do not miss the context of New Testament letters. They're written to a people who are in community, who are committing themselves as a local church together to do life together. And Paul tells us clearly that the church is God's primary means to display his glory to the universe. Listen to this. Ephesians 3, verse 7 of this gospel. I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. Verse 8. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Verse 9. Listen to this. And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Verse 10. So that... So, so what he's saying is that God, through the gospel, is uniting enemies, enemies who were previously enemies of God, and then people who were enemies of each other, the Jew and the Gentile. He's uniting them together as a display of his grace, verse 10, so that through the church, so that through this dusty group of jacked up, pardoned rebels who are trying to do life together, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. Friends, that is profound. God is saying that he has chosen in his kind providence to make places like Crosspoint and every other Bible-believing church from the New Testament until now as his primary display. So the way we actually do life together is the way God primarily wants to communicate his glory to the cosmic powers of evil. So the way we volunteer to work in children's ministry, the way we forgive one another when we offend each other, the way we serve one another, the way the wealthy use their resources for the needy in this church is meant for the glory of God. 
the way the person that's grown up in Columbus and has a tight little social circle gets outside of it and ministers and loves on a military family who's only here for six months is meant to display in a special, peculiar way the glory of God. The way people commit to not just giving themselves to a community of Christians that are in Columbus, as glorious as that are, but specifically to this local body to commit themselves to the authority of this local congregation, to commit themselves to be members of this local church so that they know who their elders are and the elders know who their people are, who they're responsible for, serves to display the glory of God. The way we all humble ourselves as a local church serves in a peculiar way to display the glory of God. Christian, do you realize that the church is central in God's plan? Are you a member of a local church? If you're not and you're a Christian, you need to be. Can I take you to a verse that says, verse, chapter 4, verse 7 of this book says, join a local church. No, but it's laced so obviously throughout the whole New Testament. There's a group of people who knew who was in and who was out. When a person sinned in 1 Corinthians 5 and it was egregious, they put him out of the fellowship. In 2 Corinthians, when another brother who's sinning has served the penalty for his sin and he's repented, he has come back now, they bring him back in. In Hebrews chapter 13, it says, obey your leaders and submit to them. How do you know who your leaders are? How do I know who I'm responsible for? How do we know? I think that the very helpful adaption that we have in a church life today of church membership is very important. And friends, don't hear me. If you're here for a baby dedication, don't walk away thinking, oh, that preacher just wants people to join his church. No, <laughs> actually, actually, I don't. I just want to clarify for you who Jesus is and your responsibility to him and his people. Listen to this. I'm going to read this for you. This is, in, this is not a biblical verse, but I'm going to read it to you. It's about a biblical verse. It's in Hebrews chapter 13. I'll read the verse, and then, uh, then I'll read you these old words. And I know I'm going long. We've had a lot of stuff going on today. I'm going to wrap it up here in just a second, so stop, stop rustling around. I'll be all right. <laughs> Hebrews 13. Listen to this. Don't, don't walk away from here, new person or person who has not yet committed themselves to a local. Don't walk away from here saying, oh, this I just beat me over the head to you know, join our church. No, no. Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. That's why Paul writes, or James writes in James, that those that are teachers come under a stricter judgment. The elders and pastors of this church will have to stand before God someday and give an account for your soul, and we want to be able to do that well. And this is what an old Scottish pastor 200 years ago named John Brown wrote to a young seminary graduate who was a little bit saddened by the fact that he had a small congregation in the country and most of his classmates had larger congregations in the cities of Scotland. John, John Brown writes to this young Scottish pastor. We don't have it up on the screen, but listen to me. He says, I know the vanity of your heart and that you will feel mortified that your congregation is very small in comparison with those of your brethren around you. But assure yourself on the word of an old man that when you come to give an account of them to the Lord Jesus Christ at his judgment seat, you will think that you have had enough. Friends, I'm not trying to grow a big, the elders, Reynolds, Will, Wayne, Paul, we're not, we're not trying to grow a big church here. We're trying to clarify who Jesus is and serve people well. And clearly, biblically, the church is central in that. The church is central in that. Certainly, there may be some things about this church that you disagree. And listen, this is, this is, this is I mean, I, any error, any problem in this church is traceable directly to me because I, I've been here since the beginning and I've been the primary leader since the beginning. This is not a perfect church. We're dusty, we're jacked up, 
We do things wrong. But friends, for the sake of your soul, you need to make the church primary in your life. Number three, point number three, God is sovereign, that's number one, over salvation, governs all things for the display and praise of his glorious grace. Point number two, I think I lost some of you there because you're offended now thinking that you need to join a church. I'm not saying you need to join a church to be a Christian. I'm just saying that it is clearly biblical that you submit yourself to the life of a congregation. Okay, take a deep breath, re-engage with me now, and let's look at point number three finally. And I end here. What Christ has done comes before what we must do. What Christ has done for us becomes the foundation then for what we must do. Chapters 1, 2, and 3 of Ephesians are all about the gospel. They're all about what God has done in Christ to make sinners alive for himself and then form a people called the body of Christ, the local church. And then chapters 4, 5, and 6 are all of the commands, all of the imperatives, all of the ways that this should work itself out in the life of a Christian. So chapters 1, 2, and 3 are gospel. They're what we call indicative, what Christ has done to make a people for himself. And then chapters 4, 5, and 6 are all commands about how we should live in light of that. Remember chapter 4 says that we should put off our old self and put on the new. Chapter 5 talks about how we should relate to one another in marriage as husbands and wives and how we should relate to one another as parents and children and how we should relate to one another as workers in the workplace. And all of this flows out of what God has done for us. You see, if we mess that order up, if we think that we parachute down into a Bible verse and we read there, it says, do this, do this, be a good husband, submit to your husband, love your wife or avoid immorality, and we don't get the gospel before we come to that command, what it could send us off into is legalism. So we, we try and earn our salvation by doing something, but the point of the Bible, the point of Ephesians, is to show us what Christ has done to make us alive, to bring us back to life, to give us Jesus' life and righteousness, and then from that we are now empower, empowered as his people to live for him. And so chapters 4, 5, and 6 rest on chapters 1, 2, and 3. Christ has made you alive, Christian, now live for the glory of God. Not live for the glory of God, and if you do good enough, then Jesus will accept you. That's not the gospel. That's religion. And the point of the structure of Ephesians is the fact that Christ has given himself as a perfect sacrifice. He's the only one that did all that God required. And he stood as a substitute on the cross to absorb God. God's judgment for our sin and satisfied that judgment and died on a cross and then rose again in victory over sin and death and all of its consequences and is now alive and because he's alive he can give life and he commands all people everywhere to turn from trusting in themselves and to trust in what he has done alone not in their own works not in their ability to live up to most of the Bible but to turn and trust in him. This is what the old Puritan John Bunyan wrote. He wrote Pilgrim's, Pogre Pilgrim's Progress, which is the second most read book other than the Bible. This quote is not from Pilgrim's Progress, but from some of his other writings. I love this quote. 
He says that the law commands us to run and work, but gives us neither feet nor hands. But better news the gospel brings. It bids us to fly and gives us wings. (laughs) God makes you alive in Christ, and he empowers you to, with other people that you commit to in the local church, live out in ever-increasing measure his commands. Why? Because God wants law-abiding people. No, because God wants to display to a lost world. He wants to display his goodness and to use his people who seek a greater pleasure, living for God, as a means to showcase his glory so that together we live out the gospel on display to a world who's dying who needs to see it. Friends, I think those are the great themes of Ephesians. And Paul ends all of this with prayer. We see a great prayer at the end of chapter 1. We see a great prayer at the end of chapter 3. And we see a great prayer, or a request for prayer at the end of Ephesians 6 that we just read, where he says, pray for each other and pray for me that I would preach the gospel boldly. These grand themes, I think, can intimidate us to some degree, and maybe we think we have to pray some sophisticated prayer. But friends, all we need to do is cry out to God. Cry out to God and say, Lord, help us. Help me. Help me not lean in myself. If you're in this room today and it has become clear to you that you are probably not a Christian, don't take this message as a sort of recipe on what you need to do. Turn and trust in Jesus right now. Do you have ears to hear? Do you even realize that you're not a Christian? I think that's evidence that God is giving you a heart to believe. Don't, don't do anything. Don't run off and make resolutions. Turn from trusting in yourself and look to Jesus and believe in him. He is the only one that can make you right with your creator. Turn to Jesus and look to him. Christian, are you in here and you've, you've just kind of given your life over to the busyness and self-absorption of our age? By God's kindness, let his sovereignty create in you joy and worship and commitment for the rest of the people sitting in this room so that together we might make much of Jesus. Well, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us think deeply and respond to these things. I'm going to pray, and then the worship team is going to come lead us in a song. And after that song, Robert will be up to give us a benediction. I know the hour has gone a little bit late. But friends, what, what more important things do we have to do than respond to God? I'm going to encourage you to respond either by, in just a moment, standing and worshiping. Respond, if you're a Christian, by receiving communion on your own. Communion represents his blood and body. You're welcome, if you are a follower of Jesus, to come and remember what Jesus has done on the cross and examine your life in light of that through receiving communion on your own. If you're not a Christian yet, you you really shouldn't receive communion. If you are, you're welcome to come and think about Christ's call on your life as you remember that work of Christ. If you need prayer for anything, we'll be down front to pray with you.
Let's spend a moment now thinking about these things that God has brought us from death to life. And he didn't do this so that we would just have a successful 70 or 80 years. He did this to the praise of his glorious grace so that cosmic powers of evil and lost people would see the goodness of God. And that some of those lost people, God would use even our dusty lives as means of causing them to turn and trust in him. Father, as we come now to respond to your word, Lord, help us understand that there's no greater privilege than to be saved by Jesus' work on the cross and to be knit into the family of God. For those of us to whom that is already a reality, Lord, would you humble us, stir us, and restore to us the joy of our salvation. For those of us for whom that is not yet true, Lord, would you be so kind as to give them life, ears to hear, and a heart to believe. Pray that you would do these things, Lord, for your renown, for your glory, and for the joy of your people. In Jesus' name, amen.